Well, there's no problem. If you had a gun, shoot him in the head. All right, welcome back to another episode of Shoot Me Straight with Eddie Gallagher and the amazing and elusive David Fields, who is yes. uh, dressed up in his James Bond attire today. That's right. Looking good. Uh, today we have an amazing guest, a really, really good friend of mine, um, probably one of the most patriotic, genuine, um, most successful uh, per people that I know. Um, he has been a close friend to our family uh, for the past, I'd say, four to five years. Um, and I'm really just stoked to have you on here. Thank you for taking the time. I know you're down here um, for a wedding mm -hmm. yep. uh, in this area. And I appreciate you just taking the time out to be on this podcast so we could have this conversation. Uh, but ladies and gentlemen, welcome Aaron Singerman. He is the owner and founder of Redcon One Supplement Company. Um, definitely check them out if you are looking for some uh, top-of-the-line supplements. Um, but, yeah, buddy, I appreciate you being here. Of course. Thank you for having me on, Eddie. It's uh, it's my pleasure. <clears throat> and uh, as soon as you asked, of course, I was like, oh, I couldn't I couldn't miss it. Yeah, oh. Especially at being last minute. Really yeah. I appreciate it. Yeah, of course, of course. No, I... Uh, I, we hadn't seen each other also in, yes. in well over a year obviously yeah we'll get into that uh, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah for yeah, sure yeah, yeah. yeah it has been it's been far too long yes um you know i was uh, glad i was able to see the kiddos uh, yeah. within that year but uh yeah i've been been wanting to get back together uh yeah it's been a long time i know you've been super busy uh especially with everything that happened and uh you know i, I want Wanted to give you time as well after you got out. I know sure. exactly how that felt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know you know exactly how it felt. Yeah. How, um, how long were you in for? You were in for about a year. Uh, I was nine and a half months. Nine yeah, and almost months. a year. Yeah. yeah. Pretty damn uh, close. Yeah. And you were in, a, I feel like you were in, so I was in a really bad place for three months, about a hundred days, mm -hmm. but you were in a bad place the whole time. It wasn't like uh, where I was at in Pensacola. Yeah. I mean, well, we can get into that, yeah, how, yeah. how it was there. Yeah. I mean, I was obviously in a military prison, but it, I wouldn't even say that was... The worst of the worst, but yeah, it was a it was a shitty place to be in. Yeah, I don't sure. know. I don't. I honestly don't know what it's like. So we'll we'll go back and forth with our prison stories. Yeah, I guess. for yeah, sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think I'll, I'll start off by just like how we connected. Yeah. Um, just to like get the audience to know. So <clears throat> obviously, most everybody knows my story. Uh, when I got out, um, you know, I had a lot of uh, people sending me uh, stuff like different companies, like hey, saying hey, we were behind you we supported you and you were one of those companies you sent me some supplements and uh so at that time i was just posting like hey thank you you know redcon one for sending me this i appreciate the support and then i think new york times ended up writing a nasty article about me saying i was using my war criminal status to make money off these companies which i was farthest from the truth right. uh but I think we ended up talking afterwards, and then you offered me uh, a job with Redcon, yeah, 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 which I am completely grateful for yeah. always. Uh, and uh, we just, you know, continued our relationship from there. You think you came down to my retirement party, yep, yep. Um, which was a good time. And I was friends with Tyler Merritt from Nine Line. Yep. He was also one of those companies that was supporting you and talking to Andrea before while you were while you were still inside dealing with all this. That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah so it's been uh, it's been an awesome relationship so far, and uh, you know. Um, I'm grateful for it. Yeah. I'm grateful for our friendship, brother. Absolutely. Me too. Me too. Then that, that ceremony was, uh, was really cool to, to see you getting out with all your closest friends. And a lot of them I, I knew at least, you know, kind of like tangentially I knew from somebody else. And then 
Bernie Carrick obviously was there at that ceremony. I got yep. to talk to Bernie. Um, and uh, a lot of those guys are, are friends to this day. So, you know, it was a big uh, emotional event to see you getting out and everybody that you cared about there. You know, all the speeches and everything was really neat. Yeah, it was. It was really cool. Uh, I mean, that was all due to Tyler from Nine Line and Nine Line himself putting that on for me, um, which, again, I'm completely grateful to them. I, You know, that's uh, the blessing of going through something like that is you, you become super – Super close to those in your inner circle, um, and you are definitely in the middle of that inner circle for us. Thank you, um, Eddie. I yeah. appreciate that, brother. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, uh, so owner, Redcon One Supplement Company, and I know, like, your story is unbelievable, just uh, how you got to that point, how, you, have you, how you've become so successful, and I do know that you have a book in the works mm-hmm. yep. that will be coming out going into detail uh, about, you know, from where you started to where you are now. And I, it'd be like a five hour long podcast, I believe, it to go, be through, go that, through everything. Yeah. But uh, we can sort of, you know, skim, go through the highlights. And sure. then uh, we'll also, at the end, let everybody know the name of the book and to be, yeah. be on the lookout for it. Yeah. In the, in the book, the, the, the reason for the book, also, it, it's a memoir, but it's, it's a business book as, long, as well as a self-help book. So the idea of the book isn't just to tell about, about me and who I am and my story, but also to hopefully help people avoid some of the huge mistakes and missteps I've made along the way. Yeah. Cause I made a lot of mistakes. So it's not, it hasn't been a, a smooth path up to success by any stretch of the imagination, as you know. Yeah. So there's been lots and lots of problems, mistakes, things I wish I would have done differently, but ultimately, you know, that's kind of part of the book too, is that that part of life is making those mistakes and missteps because going back and saying, well, if I wish I would have done this or that or the other thing and having regrets, then you may not be where you're, where you are today. And I'm very happy with where I am today. Um, so, which is a good, nice to be able to say that. Yeah. And I mean, the other big thing is also as along the way when making those mistakes or going, you know, going over those hurdles, being able to pass that knowledge on to others. once you do become successful, like, Hey, these are the things I went through. This is how I overcame it. Um, and I think that's really awesome that you're doing that to help others as well. Yeah. Obviously, the book, the, for me, the book is not a, there's not a, uh, so for, a lot of times people write a book for many different reasons. Uh, for me, there's not, the financial portion of it is not going to be, that's not what excites me about the book. So even if the book is a, a humongous success, if it's not helping people, if it's not making a positive difference for people, it won't, it wouldn't be a success for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? um, so it's definitely the, the I'm doing it for, um, I think the the right reasons um, to 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 make a difference for people because I know my story is unique enough that uh, it will be able to touch a lot of people. And uh, the reason I really decided to do it in the first place um, was even before I went to prison in this last chapter of the of my story, right? This mm-hmm. more dramatic ending of the. It wasn't. It's not the ending of the book. Um, the book actually, like the prison part, is only a few chapters. You know, the, it's it's forty something chapters in the book, but like three or four are prison. The rest of it is the rest. Yeah, it's not it's not the major part of the story. Well, I, if I remember, you were writing the book before. Oh yeah, you went to prison. Yes, so I was writing the book before. Which was yeah, the story continues. Yeah, right? story continues. In fact, I wanted the book to be done. You know, I thought the book would have been over and finished before the prison thinks I didn't expect to go to prison. Um, I was expecting to be vindicated and not go to prison. Same. Yeah, I was. That's why I was expecting you to be vindicated yeah. as well. Yeah, uh, for sure, because I. Personally, I think it was complete bullshit. Uh, yeah, it's it's it, it's definitely interesting thing. I mean, when I was in prison, you know, and we'll, we'll get into it more in, in the future. But when I told people what I was there for, people were like, "What?" Everybody was like, "Everybody." The guard, <laughs> the COs, everybody's like, "What?" Because a lot of the COs, so the COs in in Pensacola 
uh, prison camp in mm-hmm. FPC Pensacola in Miami and the, the other facilities I went to along the way, which is the worst part by far. Um, the detention facilities, which were like a pen. So the security level is a high security level. Yeah. So you're behind the door uh, 23 hours of the day. So you're only allowed out for an hour uh, a day at most, sometimes less. Um, but the rest of the time in the Pensacola prison camp, it's like, you know, a really, really, really boring camp, really, really boring camp with the counselors are all kind of sort of assholes. Not, they're not terrible, but yeah. Um, but they're all former military, almost all former military um, people that maybe guys or girls that wanted to be police but couldn't cut it or wanted to be something else and couldn't make it. And they're like, well, you know, I did you know, eight years in the Marines, may as well be a, a prison guard. So they all knew my products. They all yeah, that's what I was going to ask. They, they everybody. all knew who you were. Everybody. And so, like, a lot of the guards, specifically two guys, I don't want to get them in trouble, but two guys that ran kind of the gym kind of area, um, they took the products that I went to prison for, you know. When they were in the military, they were legal then. Those products were legal and very popular in the military. It was called Super DMZ by my company that I don't own anymore. The company that I went to prison for is Blackstone Labs. Now Redcon 1, I, I started Redcon 1 seven years ago. So this whole thing that, that, were, that, that caused me to go to prison really was 2014, 2015. Mm-hmm. So that was, that's always a tough, like when people, including me, you know, obviously, um, when you are penalized for something that was seven years in the past mm-hmm. or more, um, it's, it's tough to reconcile that. And for my case, you know, I can, I'm going to, and I'll give you some of it, but some of these guys made mistakes, you know, where they go, I, I fucked up. I made a mistake, and it's a singular mistake, mm-hmm. and I did it seven years ago, and since then I've been, you know, great. It's tough to, to in your brain, go, well, now I'm going to pay for it all this time later. Because there's three types of people in prison that I've found. There's people that didn't do it at all. Yeah, There's a lot of people that didn't do it at all, which is, I think, the thing that, that people are shocked about, right? Yeah. Because you get pushed into pleading guilty, or you get scared. There's people in situations where they go, hey, your wife was a bookkeeper. We're going to indict your wife, or you plead guilty. Happens yeah. all the time. Plea bargain factory. Yeah. They go, oh, shit. I don't want my wife to go to jail. I'll fine. Or they go, hey, Eddie, or like in my situation, it was, you know, if I w- went to trial and lost, I would get 10 to 15 years in prison. That was the, That's the facts. Or I could plead guilty and I would do be, actually be in prison two years or less, basically-ish. Yeah. And so you have to think, like, I have little kids. Yeah. And when you actually think about that, you know, take anybody – and there's lots of people in prison that, you know, that their situation is different than mine. And, and they've, and they have, you know, like my case, I felt was very strong, but they have stuff where they're like, you know, it's, it's like, this didn't even happen. But when you look at the mathematics of 15 or two and you're rolling the dice because a jury, even if you have a great case, like for most of these guys, including in my case, you'll have co-defendants who are cooperating because they want to get probation. So, you know, even good guys, say, get in front of a, uh, a prosecutor and they do what's called a proffer and they sit down just like we're sitting down here. Yep. And they say, hey, Eddie, you're in a lot of trouble, buddy. You are in a lot of trouble. You're facing some time in prison. But there's a chance. You have a chance right now. So is your one chance. If you say that Aaron, he, he did this on purpose and he knew it was illegal, I think you're going to be just fine. What do you think? And the people go, oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think he did it on purpose. Okay, take my notes. He did it on purpose, says yep. James. And now if this if this guy changes his mind, they will and, and say James gets on the stand and says, no, I, I never said that. They'll charge him with perjury. Mm-hmm. 
Yep. So and yeah. they'll tell you, look, you're, you're now you're stuck to what you said. You understand what you said. This is a legal document. You you said these things. So this happens over and over and over again, where people get co-defendants who are now going to testify against them, and they see that and they go, wow, now even though I have all these facts in 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 in, in my favor, I also have six people who are all going to point. Oh, he did it. Yep. You know, and when you got all those people saying he did it, now there's a real chance that the jury of your peers, which is not really your peers, you know, they're all going to go, yeah. oh, they all said it. They can't be, if all these people are saying it, they must be right, you know? And so it's a real roll of the dice. And when it came down to it for me, my wife and I had spent $6 million on, on my legal defense by the time Jeez. we got to this point. Yeah. So we, we sat down, and my main lawyer, I, you know, it's funny because I never asked him. This is all the way at the end, all the way at the very end. I never asked him, like, what are my actual chances? Like, if you have to give me a percentage, like, what are my chances? Because I just assumed everything's going to be okay. I kept telling myself everything, everything's okay, it's going to be okay. I mean, I told you it's going to be okay. Yeah. I listed out the, all the facts on my side and all the, uh, the exculpatory evidence. I just, we, we laid it all out. And then when I talked to the lawyer, the lawyer told me, hey, you know, you can, you know, the, the thing I said, the 10 to 15 or two years-ish, and I said, but what are the, what are the chances? And he said, yeah, 50-50. And I was, yeah. like, I was like, I thought I had a good case. He said, you do, but, I mean, we got some bad facts. We got these guys are going to say this. We got all this, 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 this. So I think 50-50. And then you're like, well, fuck. Yeah. Well, that's, now you're not, now it's 50-50 on 15 years or potentially 15 years or two. Mm. So, um, so anyway, I, I got way off track. But So there's this whole group of people in prison that didn't do it. There's a lot of people that didn't do it that didn't have the resources to spend $6 million. I mean, who, not, how many people have $6 million liquid to, to spend on to, to defend? Or even $100,000 to defend. You know, $100,000 is out of reach for most of the, I'd say 95% of the people yeah. that I met in there. They don't have $100,000 to for put sure. to legal defense. So you got that group of people. Then you got an even bigger group of people that made a mistake. So where I was at, there was a lot of people that made a mistake they're white collar, nonviolent, first time offenders. I give a great example is this guy, the Yale spinal surgeon, great guy, played uh, played football at Yale for all four years, really well known spinal surgeon, and uh, he's a little, probably like fifty ish, four little boys, uh, all teenagers now, uh, wife, and he misbilled Medicare, very successful, probably made forty million dollars in his career. But he misbilled Medicare for, for five years accidentally and made an extra million dollars. And he told me, he said, listen, I knew. We found out. Uh, my wife, who's doing the books, she found out that we misbilled Medicare. And she told me. And I was scared. We fixed it. And I was scared that there would be some consequences. I would happily pay the money back, but I just was scared. And I made a bad decision. And we, we changed the billing code to the correct billing code. And then seven years later, they, they came in and did an audit by chance. And saw that they had a million dollars they, they misbilled for several years. Mm. And, uh, and the, the prosecutor indicted him, indicted his wife too. And he was like, well, any jury would see this isn't on purpose. I'm willing to pay back all the money, pay a fine, whatever. Yeah. I've never done anything wrong in my entire life. They've, a jury has got to see that this wasn't on purpose. There was no intent. And yeah, I made a mistake. I'm willing to, you know, uh, to, to figure something out. Went to trial. He got 10 years in prison and his wife Jeez. got six. And they have kids? You have four kids, oh. four teenage boys who lives with their grandparents now. And uh, and so I know him really well. And it's like, this guy's such a great guy. Like, how could this be the right decision? You know? So there's this group of people that, that made a mistake. And then there's obviously a group of people that 
that you know are guilty that are guilty and and some of them definitely deserve to be in prison. Yeah, um, and a lot of the guys that I knew that had been in prison a long time had moved from a higher level security lower, 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 lower till they get to a camp, which would be kind of the end of the road for them. But it's trying to like get them back into some kind of normalcy before they get into the regular community. Yeah, um, so what is it, uh, like deinstitutionalized? Yeah, yeah, like, hey, yeah. Get you prepared to go to the outside world. Right, and, and that makes sense for sure because these guys who start off at, at medium or a pen, you know, uh, it's it's a whole different thing. I mean, you don't talk to a different race. You don't, you know, you're not, you, you don't associate with basically anybody that doesn't look like you. There's gang violence. There's you It's know, its own ecosystem. Yeah, totally. A different economy. Yeah. You know, there's stuff. So fortunately for me, I didn't witness any of the really weird stuff that goes on in prison. I would imagine the place that you were at probably wasn't like that. No, not, no, no not at all. And that's why I was saying, you know, it's like there's so much worse oh, yeah. know, that you can go on. But it, the the rules do still apply, like that that ecosystem and who you talk to, who you can't talk to, who, <coughs> sorry, so who not to trust, um, just the games that you play with, you know, the guards, mm-hmm. the guards play against you. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the same premise. It's just not as uh, volatile. Yeah. There's there's all kinds of stuff like that that I th- I think very interesting. People always find that interesting. All the 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 prison kind of lingo and the and like so like I, I I was very fortunate to to go to Pensacola after those first really bad hundred days, and uh, they had weights there, so everybody wanted to be in my car, my workout car, you know. And then it, you know it's, <laughs> there's like there's all these term. Everybody love that that terminologies on the different things that are for example. If me and Eddie are buddies and Eddie sits on my bed, that's a big no-no. You know, it's that no guy sits on another guy's bed. That means something weird. Yeah. You can't leave anything on another guy's bed. If you leave, if I, if I was like, oh, Eddie, here's your workout straps. I'll leave them on his bed. People be like, what's the, giving him a gift? Oh, weird. Yeah. There's all this weird. <laughs> there's a lot of weird. Like, oh, you guys are, t- you two are together. Yeah, there's huh? a lot of, there's yeah. a lot of weird stuff where it's like things you wouldn't think about um, that, that I found interesting. All the little prison stuff. So there's like this whole other thing. Like obviously like mackerels is dollars there. So you can't have dollars. You can't have money. But you can have mackerels or tuna, and that's how people trade, or stamps. So the stamps are dollars, so people gamble or buy things or have people. Um, where I was at in Pensacola, I was in the uh, residential drug and alcohol treatment program, which gets you a year off, which I was very excited to be in. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody wants to. It's funny because when you're in prison where I was at, everybody wants to be sick because the sicker you are, the faster you get out. <laughs> and then, and then everybody wants to be a drug addict or alcoholic because you got you, you got another yeah. year, yeah, you got another year. And now that Trump, you know, he did the the whole first step act, you can get an, or another year off for for just by behaving and programming, um, doing like stuff to. So I was an educational tutor and I help people study for their GED. And so oh, nice, yeah. So for doing that, you know, you get a year off. Um, so there's there's a lot of cool stuff. Thank God for President Trump because the last time something like that was done for nonviolent first time offenders, I don't know when. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Uh, that was one of the big things that he pushed with Jared Kushner because um, his dad Charles Kushner went to prison um, and uh, a federal prison camp, and so uh, Jared pushed that that along, and President Trump obviously signed it into law, and it changed the um, for first time nonviolent offenders. It changed how much time they have to do. Because normally you have to do 85% of your federal time. And so he gave the ability for people that had, they call it a pattern risk score, which is one of the things that, like, I think it's good because it works for people to get out faster and it helps better people to that are ready to get out faster. But so there's some people like me, I had a zero score. So your pattern risk score means your chance of recidivism. 
So if somebody has a zero chance of recidivism, why would you keep them in prison? You know, it's like, yeah, it doesn't really make any sense. Um, but if your score is low enough, then you are able to qualify for the time off. And so you can get up, up to a year off and then you can get additional time once you're out getting off of probation or whatever. No, that's good. I mean, it gives it gives guys in there an incentive to yeah, be good and do be something good. with it. Yeah, and do actually something. be a productive member of, I guess, prison society. Yeah. And then hopefully that'll transfer over when you get out and you learn how to be a good productive member of actual society. And guys, guys are very motivated by it. They <clears throat> want to be in every class. They go to every church class. Oh, they go welding. It. They go in painting. They go to, you know, like the, there's skills that are being learned by people that wouldn't be otherwise learned uh, where people are excited. Like literally we put up a thing for class. Like I did, uh, I did uh, world at war. So I taught a class on world war two on, and I taught a class on the revolutionary war. And when I put the thing up, bro, it was like, you know, people were fighting to, to put their name on the list. Oh, I bet. To get in the class. Yeah. I Not mean, just because they wanted to learn from me about World War II, but they want that credit. They want to be exactly. show that they're productive. Oh, yeah. And they're I mean, serious in the class. They want to pass the <laughs> test, you know. I saw the so. same thing when I was in. It's amazing. the Once you have everything taken away from yeah. you and you see how people react to that, and they're like, people will do anything to get out of there. Yeah. And they're like, hey, what you know, sign me up. I'll go yeah. do it. doesn't matter what it is. Yep. Um, I, I think I went... I actually signed up one time to go to a, uh, it was like a, a play thing where we went in this room and it was all these different prisoners from different pods and they put on these performances mm-hmm. and it was, Oh, you were in the play. I was, I sat, I was just sitting there watching cause I was like, what is this about? And I never went back after this cause I was like, no, I'm, I'm good. Wouldn't you have loved to see yeah, Eddie be, and Peter be Pan honest, or something? Eddie. There was, he was Peter the, Pan. There, well, there was people <laughs> jumping from desk to desk, singing, singing show tunes. Oh, <laughs> I remember I was like, dude, I can't believe I'm here right now watching this. Like I, but yeah, I mean, but at the same time I was like, these people are all looking for a way out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Anything. Yeah. Well, you heard it here first audience. You were Peter Pan in prison, and you were jumping death to death singing tunes. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> Eddie, if that would have gotten you out, if that would have gotten you out, you would have done it. I would have, you know. If it took me dressing up in some tights, flying around the room, I would have done it in a heartbeat. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. funny. Peter Pan syndrome. Yeah, exactly. Well, can we back up and go yeah, to, sorry, like, yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know any of your background. Like, yeah. high school, going through, did you go to college? No. Yeah. Okay. So, um. So as a kid, I was a behavior problem as a kid, uh, pretty bad. Um, I had ADD. Um, at least I was. At least I was told I had ADD as a kid. And my mom, uh, who is a great person, and you know, I'm not faulting her for this, but I, she put me on Ritalin when I was three years old. Mm-hmm. I do think part of part of the, the the rest of the story is influenced by when you're three years old. And you're told take this pill and it's going to make you better or study. Yeah. It's just like it's like the opposite. We have a, my son Asher is like a mini me, mm-hmm. and he definitely has the same thing. I don't know if it's ADD or whatever, but just that, being a boy. It's called being a boy, right? Being yeah. a boy. Yeah, yeah. So I got three of them that are being a boy, but but Asher reminds me the most of me. Um, but it's funny because you know I was told I was ADD and I took this medicine and whatever. But now I, you know, I have a pretty amazing ability to focus. So it's like, well, what happened? ADD just went away, or what? How, how did that happen? I don't need medicine anymore, and I'm, yeah. uh, I'm successful. But what? How did that? How did that? So who the hell knows, right? Was it being whatever? Whatever I. This is what I think happened, is I think regardless of whatever I had or didn't have, my mom did what the doctor said, gave me this Ritalin, and I think that that influenced how I looked at things as a kid, where it's like I was bad, 
I need this medicine to make me better. Mm-hmm. And so when I later on in life, when I was doing drugs, I don't think I consciously was like, well, Ritalin was good. And so mm-hmm. heroin will be good too. Uh, but I think that there was some, some element of when you give a kid a drug and you say, you need this drug, then you, it's like, um, now you're making it acceptable to take, take drugs yeah, and take these pills. My kids don't take any pills. Did you get the? Me- you think maybe you got the message that something's not right with me, something's wrong with me? Oh, there's no doubt I got that message yeah. for sure, for sure. I got that message. Um, but so I was bad in school, um, behavior wise. You know, I really thought I didn't do well in school either. But I, got, my mom saves everything. She's like the, she's I, 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 we, I joke, she's like the proprietor of the Air Museum. For some reason, she ke- has kept everything. Um, and I don't know if that's cause she thought it was going to be like meaningful one day or just cause she is like a pack rat. So, um, doing the book stuff and, and everything, I've looked at a lot of the old stuff. So turns out I was a B and C student, which I didn't really, I did, that's not that bad. Yeah. Um, but my behavior was terrible. I, I would get suspended enough times in school where I would almost get expelled, but I wouldn't go quite to the expulsion level. Yep. So I'd be, I'd get, you know, it's 30 demerits to get suspended. And I would do that the three, three times and then you're expelled. So I do one suspension, another suspension, I get to like 26, 27, and that would be it. You know? <laughs> um, so I, I was a bad, I was definitely a bad student. I was bored in school. I did not enjoy school. Um, I played some team sports. I was never particularly amazing at any of the sports. I played football in high school. And I was like, I, w- I wasn't good, put it that way. I wasn't like one of the better players. Um, but but I, you weren't one of the worst either. It wasn't one of the worst, but I mean, it was not. It wasn't a passion for me. I, I also think that for kids, like I'm doing a big time with Asher, that if you want them to be good at sports and like be into it, they have to start young. I started in uh, as a freshman in high school. I never played football before. Never hit anybody. Didn't know how to do anything. And then they were like, "You're big. You'll be good." And then it wasn't. Didn't work out. That, <laughs> didn't work out that way. Um, but um, but but I did fall in love with working out with weights. Um, so when I was 13 years old. Um, I would get, instead of getting dropped off at home, everybody else in the school bus got dropped off at home. I get dropped off at the French Riviera Spa uh, in, in New Orleans, Louisiana, in Metairie, really, Louisiana. Um, and it was uh, a, a big gym. And so I'd go in there every day upstairs. My mom and dad had to sign me my membership. And so I'd go there from 3.30 till 5, and then I'd walk home. And uh, and I, for whatever reason, I just fell in love with it. I don't even know really how the conversation, maybe my mom will remember, how the conversation started to get me the membership uh, but I do remember watching um, Predator with my dad and uh, being fa- <laughs> when, when Arnold did like that, you know, when he arm wrestled. Uh, Pushing too yeah. many pencils. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so, yeah, he, he does like this to stop, right? And I was like, holy shit. I remember my dad being like, look how cool. Look at that. And then flexing his arm on me. And I remember being like, oh, that's super cool. Like, that would be neat. And um, so I, I um, ended up going to the gym and got really passionate about the gym. And it's different than football or anything really athletic because it's really a matter of how hard you work. And then um, it's kind of more up to you, put it to that way. So, like, for example, there's still a genetic component to bodybuilding or weightlifting. But if I played basketball, there, it just some, of, some element of that is not up to me. Um, I could practice as much as I want, and I'm not going to be the best basketball player. Mm-hmm. But with weightlifting <clears throat> weights, you make discernible progress where you bench – 185 for three, and now next week you're benching 185 for four. You're like, holy shit, I'm, I'm doing something positive. Yeah, improving. I'm improving. And so I'm actually a big believer that improving is the secret to being happy in life, is that if you're making progress, even if you're a fat fuck and you lost 30 pounds, you're feeling better about yourself than a guy who's in great shape who gained some fat. Get worse. Yeah. Running slower 
right? That guy's going to feel worse about himself than somebody who's losing weight and has a long way to go, but he's losing weight. Um, so for me, uh, that discernible progress I made in the gym was very exciting. And so I got really, really, really into uh, bodybuilding and I was dieting. I was the weird kid that brought, this is before anybody did this, brought protein powder to school to have my <laughs> metrics, protein shakes in between meals and shake up the shakes. And, you know, cause it was all a matter of how determined you could be uh, and how disciplined you could be with your diet and training. So I felt like that was all up to me, even as a little teenager. Yeah. Um, so I had a lot of discipline for that, I had no discipline for school, but I had a lot of discipline for making sure I got the meals at the right times, eat the right food. Were you le- were you reading a lot of like the Muscle Mags oh, yeah. and like the Arnold? I was stuff? crazy. Yeah, I was crazy. I, I didn't have the money to buy all the magazines, so I would walk to Barnes and Nobles or ride my bike to Barnes and Nobles. This is like a different era now. I'd never let my kids do this. I'd ride ten miles down the road at like thirteen years old to go to Barnes and Nobles. I and mean, would you do that now? If Ryan's like, I want to ride my bike down, would you do it? I mean, you're in a different place. I don't know if my kids would ride 10 miles down the road at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, mine definitely wouldn't. Yeah. No, I, I mean, honestly, as the way we parent, yeah, I would. I'd be yeah. like, hey, all right, I, mean, man, I was one. Check in. That, uh, no. But that's it. Yeah. That in this area. This area. Yeah. Is, well, this area is fine. Yeah. Yeah. It depends. I guess it depends on where you live, too. Yeah. See, it's funny. Boca is obviously where I live. Boca is very nice. But I think if Asher were to say to me or his mom, I'm going to take my bike, he's 10 now. So maybe he was 13. I don't know. But put it this way, very few places yeah. in America does that happen anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, my parents would be like, just c- come back for dinner, and I'd just go. And so I'd go to Barnes & Noble, and I would read. I would sit there for hours. And they, they, at the time, they used to have comfortable chairs, and you'd be able to sit in the, like little couches. And I'd read every one of those motherfucking magazines, yeah. every one from pe- pe- cover to cover, and, um, and also all the books. And eventually I saved up enough money to buy the Arnold Schwarzenegger's Guide Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding. And that's when I started really making more progress because I was, had, like, an actual plan. Because before, when I was 13, 14, I'd just go in the gym and do everything. I wouldn't know what I was doing. I would watch the big guys and be like, oh, that's what he's doing. I'll go try to do that. And then I'd just go try to do something else. And then I'd go yeah. run on the treadmill. I don't know what I was doing. Um, but, um, but, yeah, so I got super-duper into that. And I think that that's where the, the riddle and connection kind of comes in is because in bodybuilding, um, you know, it, it, when I was 13 – I didn't really realize that steroids were such a big part of bodybuilding. I was just like, wow, Arnold's huge. And, you know, like yeah. at the time, you know, Dorian Yates was the one I liked the best. Um, and I was like, I, I identified with him the best because um, he was uh, closer to my age. He was Mr. Olympia at the time. And I was like, uh, he's a big white dude. And I was like, this guy looks like maybe I could look like him, but I definitely couldn't have. But I thought maybe that's possible. And, um, and so um, once I found out, oh, these guys are all taking steroids, I was like, that's what I'm missing. You know, no wonder I don't look like these the guys. Vitamin X. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was like, I don't wonder I don't look like these guys. Uh, it's it's all this. Um, so I started taking steroids on a seventeen, which is way, way, way too young. Uh, but you know that um, that that propensity or ability to to just like do what other people weren't because at seventeen you have to stick a needle in your butt, and like um, a lot of people, friends of mine were interested but weren't willing to do that. Um, and so I did it all by myself. You know, I ordered mm-hmm. it from overseas and got it and, and injected it and, uh, and started making really significant progress. How easy was it for you to order it at 17 overseas? Like, were you, what, what was it off of? Like, I was pretty sa- yeah, I was pretty savvy on the internet at the time. That was one of the other things I was passionate about as a kid was the internet and, and, uh, and stuff. It, it would not be easy compared to, um, these days there was at the time there was a World Wide web, but there wasn't much in terms of that. You know, we went to, uh, chat sites, u- usernet, usernet, uh, groups and, uh, 
and I was able to search it. I don't even remember where I got, but it was European. Okay. It came in ampules and I, and I did it and I gained a lot of weight very fast. Um, and it actually led me to, um, to, so I, that's another thing I would say. So one of the things, you know, we talk about gateway drugs and stuff. So I think to, to stick a needle in your butt as a teenager, to do it on your own, like nobody's like pushing me. I didn't have like friends like peer pressuring me. I was the only one doing it. Um, so I think that that, that even though steroids, I would not say are like typically a gateway drug to other drugs because they're so different than users. not a, for anybody out there that's never taken anything like this, you don't take steroids and you just feel different. You don't take testosterone and you're like, ah, and you go fucking feel crazy and not like Latimer and you smash the window at your head. Yeah. It's not, that doesn't happen. <laughs> right. Um, so you don't feel anything and you don't, and you don't even necessarily receive any results for weeks. So it's not like you're just immediately going to the gym and getting pumped up. So there's, it's not a, uh, a psychological, uh, acute effect. Like when you smoke a joint or drink a, drink a, uh, a few shots of vodka, you feel it immediately. And, uh, and, and people get addicted to that feeling. Steroids not like that. Um, but I think the ability to stick a needle in yourself to get to achieve a result, it, it doesn't put you that far away from putting a needle in you for something else mm-hmm. that you per- perceive as a, as a positive thing. So, and that definitely, I believe that definitely led me to do, you know, other drugs in the future. But um, fast forwarding a little bit, um, I ended up going to uh, Tijuana, as a, as a also 17 year old ish to meet a girl in San Diego. But my whole plan was to take that girl and go to Tijuana. Uh, Tijuana is also very different in 1996, 97 than it is now. You know, this is where all the kids from San Diego would go. Yeah. I'm sure you oh, went, yeah. you know, when you were there, mm-hmm. you know, it was like a safe place. Uh, you could drink, you partying, <laughs> there was nightclubs. Uh, most of the guys that I knew that went there, meet girls there. It's like a party place. Yeah. Uh, now it's a cartel place to get your head chopped off. You but know? it's also a place where you can go and get steroids. Right. You can get it. Almost anything is legal there. A lot of stuff that's not legal here uh, you can buy over the counter. And so the reason I wanted to go wasn't the partying or the girls or whatever it was to buy steroids. Um, so I went with this girl, and I freaked her out completely because she didn't know that was my agenda uh, at all. <laughs> um, uh, but I, I went to all these pharmacies and, uh, and realized how cheap it was and how available it was. So like a bottle of testosterone there was $10. And I could sell it back where I was at for like 80 bucks, $100, and all, all the various stuff. So um, as soon as um, I got home, I got together money, and I flew right back there and packed all this stuff up uh, and went to a pharmacy, and they taped it on me, taped it all over me. And I went back across the border, no problem. And so I started going every week as a, as a teenager um, for a while. This is also before, uh, September 11th. So the, there was no security like it is now. There was, I could literally meet Eddie. I could drop him off. You know, my, when I went to summer camp, I always remember my parents would bring me to the gate, you know, and see you off. Obviously that's not possible now. Yeah. There was no TSA. There was no nothing. Um, anyway, so I went back and forth and back and forth and I created a little steroid business back then of selling steroids and getting steroids. And along the way I got Nubane which is an injectable painkiller. It's a narcotic antagonist, actually. So it's not really like a typical narcotic. And that was my first experience injecting drugs to make you high. Although every, in all the magazines and all the bodybuilders were taking this, they said to lower cortisol levels and allow their body to train past the, the pain threshold. In reality, all that was bullshit. They just wanted, all wanted to get high. You know? yeah. um, and, uh, and so that was my first experience with that. Ended up um, right after that, um, that period of time, uh, things started getting kind of bad for me. Um, I uh, I ended up getting arrested three times in a row, and this is a whole other story. Thank God these are all gone now. Um, I was able to get all this expunged. 
was very, very lucky uh, with this stuff. So that bad behavior and stuff and all the steroids ended up getting me in trouble uh, where I had a guy who, um, who I trusted who asked me to hold steroids for him, um, his steroids, and then called me to bring him back. And when I brought him back, thinking he's like, I'm all clear, everything's cool, um, he had set it up so that uh, cops pulled me over on the way back. And they're like, uh, you match the description of somebody who stole car stereos. And I was like, what? And they're like, yeah, we're just looking for car stereos. You don't have car stereos in your car, and we'll be fine. And being 18 years old, I was like, oh, I don't have any car stereos. Yeah. Of course, they found the, bo- the bag of steroids, which was my buddies, quote-unquote buddies. And uh, buddy, it turns out. Buddy yeah, fucker. Buddy fucker. Yeah. Totally fucked me. Um, and then I, I got caught for two more things, and one of them was breaking, uh, this is a crazy one, was uh, simple burglary of a pharmacy. Which is a whole nother fucking crazy story. Um, it's a crazy, it's not like, it's not what it sounds like, although it is kind of what it sounds like. Um, <laughs> and they, they put all three of these things together and, uh, and I was able to go in front of a judge and a judge looked at me and my family and then I was 18. This is in 1998. And, um, was able to say that all these were one, it was multiple offenses, but one trial. Yep. And they said to me that I could either go to the military or I would go to inpatient, an inpatient uh, residential, like lockdown rehab facility, um, and uh, and we thought about it, and and I realized uh, if I went to the military at the time, it wouldn't have been good. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I wasn't ready for that that kind of that that shock to the system, um, and so I ended up going to the in- intensive inpatient rehab facility, and I spent uh, a year and a half being sober, and then. Uh, I mean, you know, it's like I, the, my story. There's so many elements of this story. Like, I'd love to tell the, the breaking into the into the pharmacies. Or you yeah. want to hear the, I feel like that's a good yeah. story. I feel like it's a good story. So, um, it's just we get really granular, like you said. It'd be a five hour podcast, other otherwise, because we're I'm, we're still 18 years old. But um, <laughs> but it's a good story. So, me and my friend, my one of my closest friends growing up, um, we were up late and you know, drinking and doing stupid stuff. Um, taking Xanax and like stuff that I brought home from Mexico that was legal there, Valiums. And, uh, and I always had, so I, when I would go to this one, it's called Safeway. It's like in New Orleans, it's like grocery store. Yeah. So you walk in, it's big, it's big. So in the typical grocery store where you have like, you know, the produce on the right side and flowers and cookies, the bakery, and then it's the typical setup. But when you walk through the doors entering the, the, the grocery store, there's a big plate glass window looking into the backside of the pharmacy. So if you can imagine, you're walking in the door, here's the pharmacy, there's the window, you see it, and that's the front of the pharmacy. So you see the back of the pharmacy and all of the aisles of the pharmacy where all the drugs are lined up and pushed back to the window. Mm-hmm. So the, you can, when you look in, you see straight through the pharmacy to the next aisles in front, but you also see all the drugs that are lined up. And it just so happened that the drugs the, towards the end were the X, Y, Z, et cetera. So Xanax, Vicodin, Valium, Viagra, they're all... At the, at the end closest to the window. All the good stuff. Yeah, the stuff that I was, like, more interested in um, and had a higher resale value, to be honest. <laughs> and they're in these economy bottles, 5,000 pill bottles, these huge bottles. And they're all lined up, and, you know, they have them all pushed to the back. So every time I'd go there to buy my groceries, I'd be like, man, these guys are so stupid. Like, why do they put them right here like this, you know? I'd look at them and like, oh, dumb, <laughs> dumb. And then, I'd, you know, go buy, buy my groceries. But that one night, uh, me and my buddy were sitting there really messed up. And I was like, we should go get those, those pills. And uh, he's like, all right. Great idea. <laughs> yeah, great idea. This is like, because this, this grocery store doesn't close down. And so um, 
so anyway, we, we, um, we're like, yeah, let's go. And so we get in his truck, he had a little like Ranger, you know, Ford Ranger and we drove out there and, uh, I don't know why, but we parked as far away in the parking lot as possible. And so, um, he had a little, one of those little window breaker things, you know, mm-hmm. for, if you're underwater, you hit it yeah, and it'll pop the window. And, uh, before we went, got there, I tested it on a few other car windows that weren't, that weren't ours, um, and made sure it worked good and it worked great. And, uh, <laughs> unfortunately for those people, yeah, 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 those people, poor, 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 they were like, what the fuck? Anyway. So, but I had to test it out. Right. You don't want to get there and, and not work. So we got there and I told them, I said, listen, we're going to go in there, you know, pop this, we're going to get it, run back to the car, we leave. Easy. There's no, like, what's the risk? He's like, okay, okay. Um, so we walked in there and uh, it's a huge window and we're standing in front of the window. And so I, I hit it with the thing and it shattered, but it didn't fall. You know, it just crack, crackled. I looked each way and there's nobody. And it sounded like a fucking explosion. And I was like, oh no. But I felt like at that point we're committed, you know. So I hit it again, <laughs> and it, it just shattered more, like spiderweb more. And then I punched it with my hand, and it broke, and all of it fell to the ground. And at that point, I was bleeding too. I cut my hand; I was bleeding. Oh jeez! And I'm like, oh man, we got to go quick. So I grabbed as many as I could, like this. I mean, of bottles, so as many as like 15 <laughs> bottles, <laughs> and ran back to this fucking truck all the way back there. And I was like, why did we park so far away? And I ran and I threw them all in the bed of the truck. And I got into the truck, and I look back, and Ben, my buddy, he's still standing at the window, staring at the window, all the way inside of the grocery store, staring at the window. And I'm like, oh, my God, what the fuck? And I get out of the car, I'm like, Ben, Ben, come on, Ben, what are you doing? Doesn't turn around, no, nothing. And I'm like, he must be in fucking shock. So I start running back to grab him. And as I'm running back to grab him, these bag boys, and I guess a manager, tackle him inside the grocery store. So I'm halfway back to the to Ben, and all these guys are tackling him. And the uh, I guess the store manager or whoever jumps on top of him and is holding him down, and these other guys are kicking Ben. And I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> like, what, what? what am I supposed to do now? Um, here I am bleeding. All the things, there's a pills and the thing. All these guys are holding Ben down. So I was like, oh, I guess I got to go. Like, well, I can't, I can't save Ben at this point. Um, so I go, I go back and this is obviously no man left behind was not one of my, uh, one of my, <laughs> you're uh, like, Hey man, he's fucked. Like, it's like, what are you doing? Ben, you knew the gig. Yeah. You're supposed to run. It's like, dude, <laughs> it, it was, it was such a surreal, the whole thing was surreal, but to be in the, in his car looking back and seeing him still there, I was like, it was like the most surreal thing. I'm like, how could he be still standing there? Like looking at the window? Like it was the craziest thing. He, and obviously he was in some sort of shock, you know, he couldn't believe what, what he was saying. Yeah. Um, and uh, anyway, so I ran back to the truck. I'm looking at what I'm going to do now. Uh, so I get back in the truck, and I realize he has the keys to the truck. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> he has the keys to the truck. So I grab all of these bottles as much as I could. I grab the bottles, and I ran down the street you know, looking for a place to hide. You know, <laughs> And so I found a house a few blocks away that was lifted, and I went and got under the, under the house with all my bottles, and I laid under the house and waited and the sun came up and everything and i ended up calling a buddy and i was like hey i need you to come pick me up and i told him he's like i'm not fucking picking you up you're crazy he's like call a taxi cab I'm like, oh that's a good idea so i call i called a taxi taxi comes i get i get in the taxi he drives me back to my apartment and the guy is so freaked out by how i looked that when i was like hey i need to go in and get money i don't, I don't have money he's like don't worry about it just just get out of here 
Because yeah. I'm, I'm bleeding. I'm like, <laughs> covered in mud. Massive <laughs> bottles of pills. Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. Here's bring, some Viagra. Okay. I didn't bring the pills. Um, yeah, here's some Viagra. Yeah. Here, take two Viagras. You'll <laughs> be fine. Um, so I went into the house and, and, uh, and you know, I'd taken a bunch of Xanax. And I, I lay in bed. And when I woke up, the police were kicking the door, hitting, punching the door. Come out, come out. You know, you're in there yeah, hitting the door. And it was so weird because of the, the Xanax. I like forgot at the moment, like what they would be doing there. I actually called my mom on the phone. I said, there's police at my door. And my mom was like, this is not typical. If you knew my mom, she's like, well, what did you do? And I was like, nothing, nothing. And she's like, you didn't do anything. Like, no, I didn't do anything. And she's like, okay, so go take a shower, brush your teeth, get something to eat. She's like, it's going to wear something comfortable because they're going to bring you to jail. So, you know, they're not going to feed you probably. So take your time and, and, and get. So as they're banging on the door and kicking the door and yelling, I'm like brushing my teeth and take combing my hair, you know, <laughs> having a protein shake, you know, like in a minute. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't even say anything. I was like, uh, and, and as, and as I was, as I was, uh, you know, eating and stuff, I'm like, oh, fuck, that's what they're here for. And I was like remembering, you know, <laughs> like coming back to <laughs> Were you fuck. brushing your teeth yeah. and you saw your yeah. bloody yeah. hands? You're like, oh, oh, no. Wait a minute. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. And uh, I opened the door and they were pissed. They're obviously, they're super <laughs> pissed. Tackle me. And they're all like, fucking, what are you doing in here? And I was like, I was just getting ready. <laughs> yeah, brushing my teeth. I wanted to look nice. Um, so, uh, yeah, they brought me to jail and uh, they're like, you know, your friend, this guy, I don't want to give the, the rest of it, but Ben, yeah, he, like, he he told us you're you're with him and all that. And I'm like, fuck, like, you know? damn it, Ben, yeah, damn it, Ben, he really fucked up yeah. multiple times. Um, so yeah, that that charge, that charge got put in with the other ones, and thank God the the judge uh, saw fit to be uh, very very merciful and realized, you know, I'm a I was a young kid, you know, I just turned 18, and uh, and he gave me an opportunity to to make it right. Um, hey, as the as the fellow recovered drug addict, yes. What happened to the pills? I got them later when, okay. I, got out, when I got out. Of, <laughs> that's a good. That's a good question. Yeah, once I got out, I went. They were still under the uh, under the under the house. Nobody nobody got nobody got in front of the house. What did you tell the uh, cops that you did with them? I didn't know. I don't know. Yeah. Don't know. Okay. I don't know what happened to them. Oh, uh, okay, I ate them all. Yeah. You know, honestly, I don't even know if they questioned me at the time. I don't remember, like, I don't remember them. There was never, like, a grilling, like, whatever. I felt like they got, they felt like they got me. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, or if there was, I don't remember any, like, any kind of grilling, like, sitting down under the light and being asked any questions. Uh, but then I went to rehab for a while, sober for a little bit of time, and then uh, went to Baton Rouge and became a personal trainer. And it was too hard to stay sober because I was, you know, I lived in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, like Tiger, you know, LSU. And the initial intent was to go to LSU, and I just never went. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, and I, by the way, I did get a, a GED. My parents were pushing me really hard to get a GED, so I went and got a GED. And, um, and it just goes to show you, it doesn't require, you know, not that it's a bad, education is a bad thing, but it doesn't require you to have a degree or an advanced degree or be whatever to get an MBA. I have a lot of guys that work for me that have MBAs. I have a chief legal officer who's a, a very smart lawyer, and he has a team that all work for me in my office, and, here I am with a GED. So it's not a requirement necessarily. And like, so people ask me, will I, will I tell my kids uh, they have to go to college? No. Yeah. Um, I won't tell them they have to. I will say that I think it's a good idea because I think it makes most people a more well-rounded person if it fits into what you want to do. 
I think it gets your foot in the door yeah. in certain places as well, but it does sure. not make you an expert in no, the field. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all. And and it doesn't guarantee success either. Because yeah. I know guys who are Harvard MBAs who, you know, make a tiny fraction of the of the money that I make and are very unhappy with their lives, you know, and are paying off tremendous student debt. Yep. Um and, cool. and they're they're these are guys paying off student debt and they're forty, you know? So it's like it's not a it's not a, a guarantee. I think it would uh somebody said this that I liked where that it, it, it being able to graduate college and being able to, you know, get maybe if you get further, it just shows to an employer you're able to be on time and reliable uh, for a certain period of time. You know, it, it shows them that you have uh, you have the capabilities of accomplishing a task and following through with something, you know, that you have some sort of reliability. Yeah, you can in. you can live up to your responsibilities. Yeah, to some degree. Right? Some degree, yeah. But yeah. what's interesting, though, and I relate to your story a ton, but what's interesting is you were an entrepreneur from the get-go. That's what I know? was thinking, too. I'm like, you, like these people that have these degrees and MBAs or whatever, it's like, well, you were getting on-the-job experience at 18 years so old, so right? Yeah, You're yeah. like, oh, cha-ching, I yeah. can see a money-making th- scheme here. Yeah. And just you, you've had experience since that. To where you are, I now. did. Yeah, no, I, I definitely. You're, you're right, and I definitely did. It's like that. That's the part where that's like we talk about genetic components for for bodybuilding or athletics. There's definitely something to be said about uh, a genetic component for entrepreneurship because some people don't have any interest in it at all. I mean, I have, yeah. I have plenty of people that work for me that love working for me. That that's their job, and they feel yeah. passionate about it. And I'm grateful I have so many good people like that. That if I said, hey, you could go off on your own and risk everything, and you could potentially succeed huge or you could fail and fall on your face and lose it all they're gonna go i like my job i don't want to do that i've I've found that that's what's that's most people right they want they want security quote unquote security i mean nothing's really secure besides the lord but like that they they just they want a career they want a job like i went and got a college degree but college was i I never did school well Like, even during classes, I'm similar to you. Like, during classes, I'd be coding something else during a coding class, right? Like, I'd be doing something else. I'd be building something for someone else. Like, I'd be thinking about a market. And and that's really what you were doing. You were going to Barnes & Noble, which I've stolen tons from there. (laughs) And uh, and made amends, too, (laughs) with them. But I would go there, and, you know, I'm looking at – I'm looking at stuff. I'm starting – for me, it was a Christian school that I'm selling pornos and all sorts of stuff to <laughs> at this Christian school, which was a great market, right? Yeah. Like, there's a big market there at a Christian school for that stuff <laughs> yeah. and tobacco and yeah. everything. But, like, I that was – I look back at it now and go, that was misdirected entrepreneurship. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Or, or yeah, I mean, in a, it's hard to say that it was the right thing to do, but, I mean, it definitely that benefited you in the long term. And I – in even the the steroid stuff, and even before that, I sold marijuana. My my uh, my parents were so so clueless about. My parents were both. I had a fan. My dad passed away, but I had a fantastic dad. Unbelievable. That's why it's hard for you know all the shit that I've gotten into is really, it's all you know self imposed. Like I I was very fortunate. I had a, gr- a great dad. I still have a great mom. I mean, she's a little overbearing and intense, but she's a great she's a great mom. Yeah. Um, nothing bad, nothing bad happened to me as a kid. I don't, I can't blame any of the things that I did on other people. I was my own, my own choices, but, uh, my parents were so uh, clueless of everything that, you know, even as a, as a teenager, as a 13, 14, I bought marijuana, um, in quantity from this girl. Uh, we'd get a, a few pounds at a time 
and uh, my parents confronted me when I was 14 or 15 because they, my dad, um, I'd keep a, in my closet, at the top of my closet, you know, a pound of weed, and then friends would come over and I would give them little quarter bag by quarter bag or nickel bag by nickel bag, and my pound of weed I'd buy for 300 bucks, I'd end up making eight or 900 bucks or a thousand bucks sometimes on that thing, and I'd, I'd re-up and buy more. And so my dad um, called me in for like a family meeting, like a serious family meeting, my mom and my dad, and we sat down on the couch, and he had the empty bag, because it was all gone now, an empty bag of marijuana. Uh, he's like, you know, like a freezer bag. And he's like, there was a lot of marijuana in this bag. And every day I'd been going up and looking, and there's less and less, and now there's nothing in this bag. How do you, what's, what's your explanation? And I was like, well, Dad, you know, I have friends that come by, and I've, I've, I took the responsibility of holding it for them because I, I didn't want them to get in trouble. <laughs> and they come by, and they get a little bit every day, and, and now it's gone. And my dad was like... Well, why were you doing that? Holding that for them. I'm like, I didn't, you know, their parents, you know, I didn't, you know, I don't know. It was a bad decision. He's like, well, you can't hold that for them anymore. Yeah. I'm like, well, it's all gone, so we don't have to worry about it. He's like, all right. He's like, no, don't do that in the oh, future. Geez. That's how fucking close they <laughs> yeah. are. You know, they're like, literally, I didn't get any trouble. And they're like, oh, well, you can't hold that for them. That's it. I'm like, well, you don't have to worry about it. There's no more. Like, okay, dad. And he's wink, like, wink. Yeah. got it. Yeah. And he's like, oh, okay. Disaster averted. Yeah. Yeah. I, we thought you were doing it. I'm like, no. Oh, no, no not way. Me. Not, not your angel. No, yeah. not me. I literally same, exact same deal. Yeah. But, like, when you think back about it now, it's like there's so many stories like that. Sure. Is it like you'll be reminded of certain ones, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I forgot about that. Like, forgot about oh, yeah. that. Well, doing the book, that really did a lot. It was, like, very uh, – it's funny how much you remember, mm -hmm. right? When you actually sit back, because I don't have, you don't have, in life, you don't have occasion to really, at least for me, I don't have any occasion to reminisce, to sit back and like spend time really thinking about it. And then when, when I actually did, I remembered a lot of stories or sometimes like my mom will remember some, a little detail and it would spark more for me or I'd have a friend remind me about this or that. Most of my friends from that period of life are, with the drugs and stuff, most of them are dead, unfortunately, but there's a few of them that are, that are still alive, uh, that remembered stuff that just sparked more memories for me. Um, and the details, you know, some of the interesting stuff is when I would write a chapter about an event and then I would confer with the person that was there just to make sure I, don't remember, I forget stuff and I would be so spot on. Because I don't think of my, I think of my memory as kind of like, kind of Swiss cheese-like, you know, where I feel like I don't have the best recollection of things. Yeah. But then, but then when you actually go and do it, you're like, oh man, I, I did pretty good. Like I, maybe my memory is better than I thought. Uh, but yeah, for sure. There's there's a lot. Of, I mean, there's a lot I left out of the book because there's too many stories and too many things where it's where you can get so uh, uh, micro that you, know, you can. I could. So also, there's an element of when you're writing a book, and Eddie knows this. You don't want it to be too long, you know. Yeah. Where it's like nobody's going to read a 600 page, you know, book like this. It needs to be realistically. My book is longer than it should be, based on what people would say. You know, there people would suggest that you're looking at 300, 350 pages. I was told the same thing. Yeah, yeah. So to be over 400, a little bit over 400 is a lot. <clears throat> um, but it's like it could it could have been 600 or seven. I mean, it could have mm -hmm. been. I'm not. Uh, I'm not. You know, Obama or something. His book was humongous. Or Bill Clinton, one of these ones. Memoirs that are thousands of pages. Mm -hmm. Uh, Henry Kissinger or some shit like that. Yeah. So people are not going to have that. The people who are reading my book are not going to have that kind of attention span. Um, they're not historians. So Well, nor do you want. You don't want to to have somebody look at the book, too, before they buy it and right. like, oh, shit, I'm that's not. That's a commitment. That's a commitment. Like, it's better off if it's, like you said, about four to 500 pages, and they're like, all right, I can get through that yeah. uh, eventually. Yeah. 
Yeah, at least that's what I was told when yeah. I was doing my book as well. It makes it, but it makes sense because like <clears throat> you look at a book that's like this, and people go, "I could do it." Yeah, people like, "Those are in prison, I was a huge reader, and people would look oh, at the books time. I was reading. Yeah, people would, would come by and look and be like, oh, you're reading that? Like, yeah. I got nothing else to do, yeah. dude. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I got all the time in the world. Literally, yeah. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, you know, that's the one thing I, w- I do regret, is I haven't I haven't been reading, like, I mean, I've been, I've barely been reading at all, which was, is crazy, because I read, I've always been a reader before um, I went to prison, and I was a crazy reader in prison. I read a hundred and something books mm-hmm. in a year. Um, and then now, it's like, I, for whatever reason, there just seems like there's no time to do it. Well, that's because you're back in reality yeah. and life. Yeah. Life uh, will take over. I think the other thing too is, is like when when I was when I was pre-prison, I was also you know married, which is a whole other we're going way outside yeah. of that. But you know, <laughs> and so when you're married, I lived a much more regimented life. I have the kids every night. I put the kids to bed every night. I was in bed by. 10.30 or so, 11 o'clock. So I had an hour to read, 30 minutes to read before I go to bed. Now things could be, you know, who knows what I'm doing. So yeah, I'm having more fun these days. So it's like, it's, you know, <laughs> and I only have the kids half the time. So mm-hmm. if I don't have the kids, I'm not going to sit at home by myself. It's pretty rare, yeah. you know? Yeah, I think that's one of those things you have to sort of prioritize. Is if, you're, if you're like, hey, I want to read a book, you do have to prioritize that in your life. Like, hey, I'm going to spend this next hour Instead of going out or finding something to do, I'm just going to get on the couch and read, read a, book, a couple yeah. chapters. Yeah. yeah. It is something. It's something I need to do, too, because I like doing it. It's just been. I wonder if it'll level off, like, as you get back into it. And I think so. The real world. I yeah. think so. Well, it's my life's obviously going to settle down at some point, you know. Mm-hmm. I've been going everywhere. I've been to Italy for a week. I went to Thailand for a week. I've been traveling a lot. So, awesome. yeah. Um, yeah, it's been it's been. They're pretty cool. Yeah, the Bahamas. I've done all kinds of cool stuff. So I, I tell you what, when 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 we're talking about you know just that genetic entrepreneurship in your story of going through, I I see when guys, I mean especially addicts, some of the best people in the world are recovered addicts, right? Like when they get in recovery, and then they're living under morals and they're being honest and they're helping others and they're doing all the things you got to do to stay sober. Like, really being sober, not just dry. Dude, some of the best people, truly the best people, best business owners, best employees. Um, I'd hire someone that's in recovery, like, truly in recovery, over just a normal MBA guy any day. Sure. But yeah. then the opposite, <laughs> when, when when they're using. But if they fall off the wagon, it's not yeah. a good thing. Yeah, yeah. It's not a good thing. So, you... Obviously, we, we left off uh, Well, we told the story about you breaking into the pharmacy. <laughs> yeah. um, but you A long time ago. <laughs> you went back to, you got at 18, the judge was like, okay, yeah, let you go. Yeah. Um, and then you were in Baton Rouge, yeah. right? Uh, supposed to be going to LSU, yeah. uh, but you're being a fitness, you're a trainer yeah. down there. And then uh, what, what happened from there? You know, I'm I'm going to, I'm going to speed it up. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I'm up, so. um, I, uh, you know, basically from the around that Baton Rouge time, I discovered Oxycontin. Oxycontin was very popular at the time mm-hmm. um, and very easy to get uh, where they had all these pill mills where you would go in, you just say, hey, my back hurts. And they'd be like, here's, you know, for 60, 80 milligram Oxycontins, here's Lortabs, here's Xanaxes, here's Somas, and you pay cash. And, uh, and it was a good, like, side gig because you obviously wouldn't take all those and people would sell them and they make money and they go to another doctor and it was like a whole whole hustle 
where people would do this. And, and, uh, and I didn't just do it to make money. I did it cause I liked the, the drugs and, um, it wasn't the beginning of going to LSU. It was a few years in before I started doing it, doing it with a girl and, you know, one thing led to another. And eventually I broke up with that girl and moved back to Louisiana. And once I moved back to Louisiana, this is 2004. Um, I was still certainly a mess doing drugs and everything. I, I hadn't, this is an interesting thing because also like, like talking about the education, you know, I, at the time I'm 24 years old, 25 years old, had really accomplished nothing with my life. You know, my, my, by, by this point, my parents were nervous that I was going to die because people that I was around were dying and they had a good reason to be concerned about, you know, my health. They knew I was injecting drugs. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, people often say, you know, by a certain point, like you either have a direction in life or you don't like, and you're a mess. And I didn't really get any kind of direction in my life till later on. You know, I didn't make any kind of money until I was in my thirties. Like it wasn't like I was, uh, some kind of instant success. In fact, I was pretty much an instant failure. You know, I was a disaster. And, um, in 2005, living in New Orleans, Hurricane Katrina happened. And uh, I waited till the very last moment. My parents and my my uh, sister and most of the people that I knew left. And I was going to ride out the storm, Hurricane Katrina. And um, and then Mayor Ray Nagin came on the television, and uh, who was a famous mayor who said, uh, uh, who ended up, I think he ended up going to prison. Um, but a lot of the mayors in New Orleans <laughs> ended up going to prison. <laughs> but he, um, he came on the TV and said, um, that if you're still here and you have a car, um, you're crazy and you're going to die. And I was like, whoa, because like, I've been through so many hurricanes. I never yeah. heard that somebody calling and say, you're going to die. Pretty direct. Yeah, you're going to die if you're still here. And, um, and I was like, wow, I should probably leave. And I don't know why that struck me because I didn't want to leave because I couldn't, once I left, I couldn't get drugs anywhere else. So if I drove to Houston with my parents, I don't know anybody there. How am I going to get any drugs? And mm -hmm. so my, my fear was that I was going to go someplace and be super sick, dope sick. Um, so I waited till that last minute, and then I ended up driving to Houston. And instead of taking four hours to go from New Orleans to Houston, it took me 24 hours and because uh, the traffic was oh, so crazy leaving. Yeah. It was crazy leaving. And I, somehow I had the forethought to get extra tanks of gas, you know, like the red containers of gas, because uh, cars were littered on the sides of the road. It was they ran out of gas. So I was, I don't know, I don't know what made me smart enough to, to get, to do that, but I got my gas tank and then two of those containers. So I made it in, uh, without running out of gas and I got to where my parents were staying and I eventually got a FEMA apartment as a evacuee, as a refugee. So the government paid for me to have an apartment and I ended up not being able to get Oxycontin there and I, and I found heroin there. And, and that was kind of the beginning of the really desperate part of my story. Um, doing intravenous heroin for a year, I went to the ghetto. The worst part is called Yellowstone, which is a stretch of um, of road kind of um, of like shanty houses and, you know, um, really like poker games and brothels and crack houses and like really bad area where um, I would go every day to a, basically to a, like a crack house to buy heroin from this, this guy, Red, drug dealer of mine until he ended up getting killed. I witnessed him getting killed. It was a whole, a whole crazy thing. This like, there's too many elements of the story to go yeah. through every bit of it. But, but I ended up um, getting on heroin and, uh, and then meeting a girl who sold cocaine. So I was doing heroin and cocaine, intravenous cocaine. And uh, life really spiraled out of control. Right? I was barely talking to anybody, my parents, anybody. Like, she was making money selling the cocaine. I was living in her house. 
um, little tiny skinny white girl. Um, her boyfriend was this uh, Spanish drug dealer who moved to America to sell drugs, to sell cocaine. So he would meet his guys when they come with the boat, um, and they would he would literally meet them at the boat, get the, the kilos, and then would sell it and get the money back to them. I don't even know the whole mechanics of the deal. He got killed in a gunfight, and she decided that she would continue meeting the boats and continue mm-hmm. getting the cocaine, uh, which is, is a pretty crazy thing to do, but she had the connection. She met all the guys, so she just kept doing it. So even though he died, she continued his business. And so I had unlimited, like unlimited, unlimited cocaine. Um, and I would do like 100 shots a day of co- injections Jeez. of cocaine. So because of that, I barely ate. It was the first time in the whole this whole period that I wasn't working out, as crazy as that sounds, even on heroin and everything. Um, even when I was really bad, my parents didn't obviously want to give me money to do more heroin, but they gave me a gym membership. Major always had a gym membership. Major always had protein powder and peanut butter and jelly. So that was the... That was the, that was the what I was allotted. <laughs> the staples. Those are staples. But honestly, that's such a really a great thing to do because a lot of parents in that situation would just wash their hands of the yeah. kids. They'd just be say, this kid's a fuck up. I'm, he's, he is causing uh, a stress and, you know, making us obviously very sad. Um, I don't want anything to do with it. And, uh, and they didn't, they never like fully did that ever. Um, so I always had gym membership. I always had protein powder. So I would always go to the gym at least three days a week until I did cocaine. And then everything stopped. You know, you don't shave your face, you barely brush your teeth, you're not drinking water. I mean, it was craziness um, when you're when you're doing that kind of, yeah. of cocaine. I was doing, you know, an ounce ounces a day of cocaine intravenous, so it was really craziness. So I had unlimited, so just as much as you want. Um, and then whenever I would start having, like, um, seeing stuff that wasn't there or hearing things that wasn't there, then I would go to sleep because I'd get scared. Um, but it would literally get to the point, I remember one occasion where I've been shooting cocaine for probably five or six days without drinking water, barely at all, no food, um, no shower, no brushing teeth, nothing. And I'm hearing babies crying. And everywhere I was going, I'm hearing babies babies crying. And I was like, okay, I should probably go to sleep now. Like, <laughs> you know? So I was like looking for the babies. And like, oh my God, there's no babies. But I was, it's like continuously hearing like from over here, baby crying. I go over there and then I hear it over there. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah. It was, uh, I would get uh, auditory hallucinations, right? Hear stuff yeah. like where it seemed very, very real. And that's when I knew I'd have to go to sleep. Um, so it was really, that was the worst part. Um, and then that ended and I had a, a kind of a epiphany moment because we had a guy at the house I was really close with who was, um, so this girl, Jennifer, was a um, wholesale drug dealer. She didn't sell. She wasn't direct to consumer. She was wholesale only. So she was B2B. So she did it strictly like that. There was no um, very, 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 very rare that she would sell to a person, like a, a random guy. But this yeah. is one of this guys that I liked a lot. She liked a lot. Owned a construction company. And he would come by, you know, an ounce at a time. So it was very, very little. But she liked him and I liked him. So he'd come over and hang out. And this guy went, came over and hung out. And uh, me and her got into a fight or something and we went in another room. I don't remember, you know, when you're doing all these drugs, time is kind of, you know, fluid. So yeah. I don't remember how long we were fighting or what it was even about. But when we came back, he had died on the couch. Ooh. So he had OD'd on the couch. And I went um, to try to wake him up. And I went, as soon as I touched him, I was like, oh, something's not right. Mm-hmm. And he smelled like shit. He shit his pants. You know, he defecated. Yeah. Um, and I was like, oh, God. And I told her, like, fucking guy's dead. And I was like, I couldn't believe it. Because it was literally, we were just talking to him. Everything was fine. And I came back, he's dead. And he was like dead. Obviously, it didn't just die. He had died a little bit of time. But it had been the time. It seemed like I just talked to him a moment ago. We just went to the room and then we just came back. But it, obviously, it, based on his condition, it couldn't have been instantaneous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she told me, you know, get him out of here, put him in his truck, 
and drive them away and then come back, right? And I was like, no. So I'm not doing that. And she was like, yeah, you have to. She's like, I'm not having cops come here. Like, I'm going to get in trouble. I have drugs here. You have to move them. I was like, uh uh-uh. I was like, I've watched enough CSI to know, like, (laughs) this is an accidental death. If I pick up his body... Put it in a truck and drive him somewhere. That's a crime. Comes a homicide. Yeah, it's fucking. Who the fuck knows? I was. I wasn't touching him. Um, plus, he's my friend, and I felt like like the whole thing was so wrong. You know, somebody I actually liked. Um, it was uh, tra- already traumatic. So she started screaming at me and be like, "You're a fucking pussy," and all this. And I'm like, "I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it." So she started punching me, and so I literally remember this little girl punching me in the face over and over, and calling me a pussy to take my friend's body and move it to the truck, and something to me like kind of like literally like snapped and I, and I turned around, I went to the door and I left the door, like literally left her apartment. She's yelling and chasing me, got in my car, drove back to my apartment, locked the door. And I was like, I'm not gonna, that's the end. I'm not doing any more drugs. Mm. I was like, either I'm going to end up like my buddy or worse, or something's going to happen. Like this is a, a, a moment of time where I needed to make a decision. And so I made that decision that that was it. I never talked to her again. I never, um, I never, um, that was the last time I ever injected anything. I never did uh, drugs after that. I did, unfortunately, have to, I went to the methadone clinic after that to to stop taking the drugs. The methadone clinic was a whole other fiasco because yeah. they don't want you to get off of it. Um, and that ended up taking me several months of getting off of the methadone before I was fully, like, off of drugs. Um, mm-hmm. But um, Was Suboxone out then? No, there was no Suboxone that, that, that at the time. I know Suboxone's huge now for, for, for addiction. Methadone is... 100% worse. And the methadone clinics are such a money-making business. These, it's, it's a privately owned business. You know, it's not like a charity or anything like that. Or at least the one I went to is not like that. So you'd pay $12 a day, and they would want as many people as possible to be, you know, lined up to, to get the methadone. And then eventually, once you've been on it for a little while, they'll, they'll give you take-home doses because they don't want people lined up outside the door. They want to have new people cycling in. Yeah. And it's it's trying to get the new customers in. Yeah, they're trying to cycle in as many people as possible, humanly possible. Um, and so I did that uh, until I got a 30-day take-home dose, which took me a few months, and then I never went back again, and I just slowly you know, took less and less and less of the take-home. So those 30 days ended up lasting me long enough to quit. And then I was still sick for like a month. Uh, but thankfully, I met another girl by then uh, who's nice, and, uh, and like basically kind of took care of me to help me get off that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, that was 27 years old. So, you know, by 27 years old, I was accomplished nothing. I was like, I was a, a wreck. Um, and, and I turned around my life from then. So, you know, from then, uh, I started, uh, I basically, I started being a trainer again, cause that's the thing that I knew the best being a personal trainer. And that led me to discover my passion, figure out what I really wanted to do with my life. And the only thing I could think of that I want to do in my life was bodybuilding. But I realized being a tall, skinny Jewish kid by, by nature, like, you're not going to be Mr. Olympia. I'm not going to be the next Ronnie Coleman, you know. Um, but I looked around the world of bodybuilding and realized, you know, a lot of the people that were making money um, in the media world um, weren't bodybuilders. You know, Joe Weider and Steve Blackman who owned uh, Muscular Development, some of the writers that I followed, and a guy named Dave Palumbo who was um, – uh, they called him the anabolic freak. He wrote a column in muscular development. I loved when I was a kid. He had created uh, his own supplement company at the time. I started thinking like, oh, maybe there's a way to do something in bodybuilding that I love and make money and not necessarily be a bodybuilder. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and that's what I did. I chased that with everything that I had until I got a way in. So I started a podcast with another guy named Carl Lenore and we did an off topic radio, which was 
like the underground world of bodybuilding. So it wasn't necessarily about um, the actual bodybuilders or the contest. It was everything surrounding it, kind of the culture surrounding it. And so we did that, and that show is very popular. Uh, very One of the first um, fitness podcasts, and we did 300 hours of podcasts together. Uh, it was live broadcast, which was also really unusual. There was no such thing really at the time as live streams, but we'd do a live stream audio so the audience could interact. Um, was this around 2010? This was in, um, no, this was in 2008. 2008, wow. Yeah, 2008, yeah, um, when I was 28. And and it got really popular, and it allowed that one opportunity, led me to another opportunity uh, to eventually join Dave Palumbo's team uh, at a company called RX Muscle, which is a, the biggest bodybuilding media uh, website. Uh, I covered the world of bodybuilding, and I traveled the world doing that, ended up becoming the editor-in-chief of that website, and that's when I got pregnant with um, my wife at the time. Uh, we're technically still married, but not for much longer. Um, and that was 12 years ago. And um, we met in uh, 2010. And, um, and as soon as we got pregnant, I realized I needed to make more money. Because oh. covering the world of bodybuilding is not, like, lucrative. You know, I was enough to pay my bills, and it felt like a dream come true to me. Because I was traveling the world getting to cover bodybuilding, and I felt like I was doing something I loved and paying the bills. That's pretty awesome. Um, but uh, there's no, like, you're not going to yeah. support a family doing yeah. it, really. Yeah. Um, and so, <laughs> once again, I looked around what I was passionate at, and the people that were making real money was sports supplements. And I've been taking supplements my whole life since I was 13, so I, I knew a lot about them. I was passionate about them. I started a supplement company. That company, Blackstone Labs, became the 27th fastest-growing uh, privately-owned company in the Inc. 500, and number one in health for that year, um, wow. and uh, became a big success. Uh, we made products that were more edgy, certainly than Redcon. Redcon doesn't make anything really edgy, but we were a bodybuilding kind of bodybuilding centric company, mostly for guys who didn't want to break the law but wanted an edge. Yeah, um, you know, and that's why it was really popular. United States military, extremely popular, very popular. I, I remember. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, they were popular, really mm -hmm. popular. That especially in that era, that time period. Um, really like really police, military, first responders, firefighters. These are like the people that were a core consumer. Um, and, um, and the company blew up. It did, it did unbelievably well. We never anticipated. We were just two meatheads, you know, to, to grow a company that fast, uh, was, was amazing and exciting. And then me and him started having problems. You know, I think when you make my experiences, when you make money, you can go two ways with it. You know, you can go become more giving and more generous and, you know, become a better person because you've made more money. The more money you have, the more ability to help other people do good things. Um, I look at the more money that you make, the more things that, like for me personally, making money and having money gives you more freedom. So for some people, it makes them feel like they're a big deal. You know, you're now you're, you should be respected. And so he went that direction. He never got married. He never had kids. Uh, he kept, you know, being like, Kind of like, kind of living the Playboy lifestyle. Me and him, when we met, we were both doing that, but we had no money. We were both doing that and having fun. And he became then like, more like uh, thinking he was a big deal. Yeah. And so we started having a lot of problems because, you know, having children and a wife and like not doing that kind of thing at all. And then having another guy who's like banging porn stars and, you know, doing drugs in the office and bringing, you know, chicks. It's like we're living so different lifestyles. Yeah. Our sensibilities are so different. You know, I'm annoyed that he's doing that. He's annoyed I'm not doing it, you know. Um, and so we grew apart big time and ended up having a partnership dispute, which seemed like a really terrible thing at the time, but it ended up being the the impetus of what created Redcon 1. Um, because when I left 
Blackstone, I was like, I'm going to be able to do, I'm going to do this again, but I'm going to do it bigger and better. I'm going to learn from all these mistakes I made. I'm not going to have any partners that, that, you know, pull me down and push me in the wrong direction. And, um, and that was really the beginning of, uh, of the brand. And I also wanted to uh, show everybody, including him, that I'm going to do it much better. And uh, I'm going to make Blackstone Labs look like a, a spec. You know, there's some element of that. Yeah. Of crushing sure. people, you know, that you got to embrace that to some competitive degree. element. Yeah. I'm a very, very competitive person. So, yeah. you know, and he made it competitive too because his whole goal was basically get me out of the business any which way possible, whatever money, anything, so that he could show me that he's better than me. It was like literally his own words. I'm going to show you how much better I am than you at this. Okay. Um, game on. Yeah, game on. And so uh, we came right out of the uh, out of the um, out of the gates with uh, Redcon, and you know we did in the first first year we did over ten million dollars in sales the first year, and the following year he did thirty two million, and the next year he did eighty three million. So wow. it's like things we went far yeah. past Blackstone very Three quickly. Three X yeah, very quick, and wow. we continued. So it was uh, it was a uh, it was very very exciting again. Uh, it was much less drama because I didn't have a partner that was creating so much drama. Um, and um, and it, it's been amazing, very also still very chaotic, crazy journey to the top with the brand. I mean, there's it's literally every day it seems like there's some sort of disaster that has to be averted or navigated. Um, and then I went to prison, um, which we kind of started the whole show off. Yeah. Um, for the products that we made at Blackstone. So... The products that that we had were called pro hormones, and pro hormones were legal until December twenty fourth, two thousand fourteen. So the company started in two thousand eleven. We sold these products legally, along with many other types of products. That wasn't the only kind of product we sold, but that was, you know, uh, six products that we sold of of twenty something were pro hormones. And what pro hormones are are basically something that converts in the body to a hormone, like almost like a precursor. You know, where it was, you know, if you take it. Um, on its own, not a hormone. Once you digest it or ingest it, it becomes a hormone. Or in some of the cases, there are hormones that aren't known by the as hormones. You know, and um, so anyway, in 2014, December 2014, the law changed and it was called Designer Control Designer Steroid Control Act of 2014. This law had been tried to be passed in 2010. It didn't pass. Tried again in 2012. Didn't pass. Then in 2014, we knew that it was there again, but nobody was even talking about it. So he just assumed it wouldn't get signed. But then Obama, right before the Christmas break, suddenly signed it and it shocked everybody. And so it listed off 25 compounds in this law. And of the 25 compounds, four of our six were listed. So we immediately discontinued um, those products. We sent out emails to all the customers. We did a video about it. Internally, we had a memo. Everybody had to sign saying these products are now illegal. We contacted a lawyer, got legal advice about the products. And um, the two that weren't on the list we assumed they would be added at some point. Like it's almost like they missed them. They forgot about them. So we continued to sell them for a little while until we got a, uh, a lawsuit from a competitor who sued us saying that these were illegal products and were hurting. It's called a Lanham Act case, hurting his sales of his products. So at that point we were like, fuck it, you know, we're not going to keep selling these anyway. So we ended up settling with this guy, stopped selling the products. And that was in 2015. Um, in 2017, Blackstone, I was already gone, started Redcon in 2016. Uh, Blackstone got raided by the FDA looking for those products, but they weren't there. Nothing was there. These were all gone at the time. And to be honest with you, we didn't even know what they were looking for because I wasn't part of the company anymore. Mm -hmm. And me and PJ, the other business partner, we weren't friends. So, like, I knew they got raided. Yeah. But I didn't have the relationship with him anymore, nor did I want one to call him up and be like, hey, what happened? What's going on? So I just was like, fuck. 
So I ended up getting a criminal lawyer. Criminal lawyer, idiots, two, two really bad lawyers, morons. This guy, Guy Fronston, ugh, the worst of the worst. And, and he didn't know anything about anything. He just was like, oh, you're fine. You're fine. Um, don't, like, basically gave me as much bad advice as you could possibly get from somebody. Yeah. But I was like... I mean, if I'm not a target, what, what more really do I need yeah, to know? Yeah, you don't know. I don't you know, know. You're trusting this guy yeah. as a lawyer, like, okay, dude, you're the expert in, in this field. In reality, I don't think he ever did anything. He I think he just took the $25,000 retainer was like, you're good. Yeah. You know? Um, and then anything he told me after that was oh, terrible. Anyway, um, so we basically just went out living our lives, you know? And back in my head, I was still worried, but I didn't know what was going on. And then in 2019, uh, in March of 2019, I got a call from these idiot lawyers. And they're like, oh, so uh, turns out the federal government says you're, you're indicted. And I'm like, indicted for what? He's like, I don't know. It's sealed. And I was like, but it's related to the Blackstone stuff. He's like, yeah, I think so. And it's like, so what now? He's like, tomorrow you have to turn yourself in at the federal court. We'll be there with you, and we'll make sure. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and... Um, and that was the beginning in 2019 of the of the of the whole thing that ended up where I went to prison in G the very beginning of January 2022. Mm. So um, from 19 until January 2022, I was dealing with really from 17 I was worried, but from 19 I was dealing with being indicted and all of the negative things that happened for business and for me personally and for my my relationship and really everything, everything. Okay, Eddie. yeah, dude. Sorry. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> um, so that the, all that stuff, you know, uh, affected everything negatively. And it's amazing that business continued to grow and a lot was accomplished during that period of time. Um, and then, you know, like I told you in the beginning, I thought I was going to win. I was convinced. That's why I spent all that money. Because in reality, the millions and millions of dollars I spent were totally unnecessary. Because I could have hypothetically just plead guilty. And if I would have pled guilty right away, I probably would have been, I would probably have been better off, yeah. at least with the prosecutor in terms of them being mad, because they definitely did not like me. Um, and I would have, the result would have been basically the same, um, minus the, all the millions of dollars I spent. Um, but at the end of the day, the, the right things happened. You know, I, I truly do believe everything happens for a reason. If you are looking at things as an opportunity versus as a, a regret, and, um, I mean, look at your thing, right? Yeah. I mean, there's no question. It's an opportunity. And, uh, too many people, I think, uh, you know, they always say, um, one door closes, another door opens. I think too many people walk through the door and stare like longingly back at the door that's closed and not, not enough at what's the, what's the door they should be looking to walk into next. Well, yeah. And that's, that's ends up being their downfall most of the time, right? right. It's like looking in the uh, rear view and being like, oh, I can't believe this happened instead of like you said, okay, this did happen to me. What are the, what's the silver lining here? What, yeah. what can I do, you know, or make out of this? One uh, of the things I always say is opportunity in disaster, right? There's always opportunity in yes. disaster. Yeah. If you're looking for it. Um, and in, in my life, all of the biggest opportunities have come from disaster, yeah. you know? So I try to remind myself that um, as much as I, as much as I can in times of desperation, it's like, this is going to be a good thing. Just got to keep an eye open on why it's going to be a good thing. Yeah. Well, if, if you didn't, if you didn't go through that, original door it sure. wouldn't have led you to the other one there's no way right. to and, and that's what i was saying when we're talking in the beginning you know the whole like butterfly effect thing like if you if i'd said well man i wish i would have never sold that super dmz well then i probably wouldn't have started blackstone and blackstone wouldn't have led to the partnership dispute that which led to the creation of redcon which has created generational wealth for my family um and uh and yeah it wouldn't have led to 
going to prison, but I also wouldn't have started Redcon. And, you know, if I wouldn't have, I mean, it, you, you can go back and back and back all the way, you know. Yeah. And if you, if you, if you don't, if, uh, one of the sayings that we have is the, the past is not the lock, it's the key. Yeah. Right. And so if you don't keep that other door, because who knows what God's going to use with your past experience sure. going forward. Right. You know. Yeah. No, I am a big believer in that. I think that things that, that in a, and when you say things happen for a reason, you can look at it in multiple ways. And that's one of the ways is that experience. Who is that going to help? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. how did that, that thing that happened to you, who are you affecting on purpose or inadvertently um, based on that experience? So yeah. like Eddie's book, who knows how many people read that book and di- it did something for them. Yeah. You know, it made a difference to them. <laughs> Even if you don't know who they are. You know, yeah. it could be, it could be the case. And that's the purpose of going through something like that. Right. And like we, I think we talked about it earlier, you know, you go through hurdles in life and you make mistakes in life. Um, and once you achieve what you're supposed to be doing, you get over those hurdles. It's your responsibility to point out the mistakes that you made and the sure. hurdles that you went through to others. So they don't make the same mistakes or just the mindset you had of going through those, those, just those little things help individuals a lot bigger than you think. I mean, right. I've had since I put out that book and, you know, when I did the book, I, it wasn't, I think I was doing it to tell my side of the story and our side of the story, my family's. Right. But then it turns into, you know, people have reached out like, dude, just your mindset and what you put out, how you got through those things have helped me. You know, I had a guy was like, I was about to commit suicide until I, I think it was like one of the podcasts he watched that I did. And like those little things right there make it all worth it. Of course. You yeah. know, it's huge. It's yeah. huge. For sure. Yeah. You mentioned it earlier, like the bigger why, like once you've uh, like been successful somewhat, right? Like, I mean, there's always levels, right? Of course. It's not like you're going to look back at the end of life and go, man, if I'd only made $1 million more, right? you know, you're going to go, hey, what impact did I do? Did I have a bigger purpose? Did I have a bigger why? Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely, you know, and as I go, that's something that I think about uh, often because I know I happen to be fortunate enough to know a lot of people that are much more successful than me. Um, and I, and you know, at some point you have to wonder, because I have, I have, you know, I'm thinking of a particular guy who I love who's fantastic that you guys would love, um, but he is, you know, he is, he's made many billions and he made, wants to make many more and he works very hard and he's in his 60s. Um, and I always wonder, you know, and we've talked to him about it. It's like, what, at what point do you go, okay, like when what it? else, what else should I be doing with this? Yeah. Time? Cause he's, he works, he works more hours than me and, um, and he's very motivated and driven and I admire that about him, but it is a question where we've, I've said to him like, Hey, at what point do you stop? Like you're going to, are you going to be in your seventies and then stop working? You already have, he has, there's no way he could spend the money. He could, he could act like a lunatic and he can't spend his money. So why not, why, at what point do you say, like, hey, I'm going to work half as much, or I'm going to spend more time with the kids, or I'm going to, you know, vacation more? Yeah, and unfortunately I think that's a uh, that's a plague in our society that's been there for a long time where it's like work, 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 make, make more money, make more money, make more money, and then you really, I think people, a lot of these people who are successful and made billions, and like you said, they're at 70 years old, they look back and they're like, okay, well, what did I do? to enjoy my life or yeah. to help others. I mean, I've been hustling this whole this whole time and it's like, yeah, now I'm 70, 80 years old and you only have so much time on this earth and it's it's almost too little too late at that point. Yeah. Right? And you never you never know you're not guaranteed anything, right? We know yeah. that. You're not guaranteed to I'm not guaranteed to live to 70. You never exactly. know. You never yeah. know what's going to happen. So, it's something I think about because I could very easily see myself being like my friend I'm talking about. 
because that's I'm I'm extremely driven and I'm never really satisfied and I always want to make more and I'm not really you know it's tough to you know it's funny I gave a tour of the uh, the warehouse to somebody really recently and uh, I gave her this tour and, and she's like you should be really proud of yourself this is fucking unbelievable um, specifically in the warehouse seeing all the products and everything and I was like yeah hey, you know you're right and she's like she's like you you seriously haven't like thought about it? I'm like not not really. I was like, well, I haven't really thought about it. I was like, giving you the tour, it's it's helped me reflect and think about it. Because, you know, you're so focused on a goal, and mm-hmm. you stop to, you don't, like, yeah. stop to think about yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, and, and you never really reach a point. I, at least, have never feel like you don't reach a point that you're like, oh, man, now I'm super successful. It's like, no, no, no. Someone else is super successful. Because it's just like, I swear, it's like, it's like it's bodybuilding. Like, you always look at the guy, and you're like, oh, that guy's way bigger than me. It's that yeah. comparison yeah. syndrome. Yeah, yeah. you're like, yeah. So if I didn't, if I didn't have, maybe it's a bad thing. I have some friends that are so much more successful because I look at them and I'm like, that's where I need to get to. I want to get to that one, you know, but in reality, um, maybe that's not always the thing that you should be focused on. You know, well, it's a good thing. Right. Yeah. But it's like, like anything. What's else? the addictive part of, you know, bingo. Yeah. It's the addictive part of my nature for sure. Where it's yeah. like, you know, um, or the extreme part. And that's why I like a lot of like uh, when people go or have asked me about, um, what do I like about seals? Navy seals is cause they have a very similar, not everybody. We know there's all kinds of different kinds yeah. of seals, but that kind of extreme nature and the kind of all in all the time mentality and the um, same addictive personality and the addictive well. personality, yeah. all that stuff fits me. And and uh, not that I could have ever been a Navy SEAL because I didn't. I don't have the physicality at that age. I was never. I would, can't be a thirty uh, something year old, uh, you know, getting to buds. <laughs> you never know, but yeah, I mean, yeah. it's yeah. Well, I wouldn't have anyway, but but you know what I mean. That that wouldn't wouldn't have been possible for me. But I appreciate the mentality that it takes to do it because it's a certain kind of person, and that's the kind of un, you know whether I had the physical ability or not to do it. The mental part is the part that I identify with. Yeah, it's the same like minded drive. Yeah, that that yeah. Uh, keeps us, you know. Keeps us doing what we do, and then yeah. obviously in the business world, yeah. it's the same like-minded drive that makes you super successful. Yeah. It's that extremism, yes. right? And yes. that's where it's a positive a- attribute to have, but it also can be a negative attribute if used the wrong way, right. um, which right. I've, I've found out over time as well. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. Right? But I, I mean, I, <clears throat> I sincerely appreciate you, brother, like the, especially what you do for the military community and the law enforcement community. Um over and over, I know we have, we have similar friends uh, yeah. that you've you've helped out or you've you've allowed to uh, sort of join the Redcon One uh, yeah. gang or whatever yeah. the company. Yeah. Um, and it's been it's awesome to see. You know, you're you're very well respected within my friend group as yeah. well. I mean, we you know, cool. Got Ryan Bates and all my them. first my first athletes yeah. were, were uh, so I, I probably should have said that considering <laughs> we're here. But you know, Ryan Bates and Brandon Cruz were my first. Redcon one athletes or ambassadors, whatever you want to call it, um, two amazing dudes, oh, yeah. Navy SEALs. And the reasons why I liked them so much was that they were charismatic, they're funny, um, they're in, in shape and fit, and they were uh, versatile. So they weren't one dimensional. Yeah. You know, they could run, they could trade, they could do whatever, fight, they, can, they could do it all. Um, and so there were two really great uh, guys who helped propel the brand uh, right in the beginning. And I'm still close with both of them. Yeah. yeah, with Ryan in particular, Brandon. Whenever I see him, I, I love him, and I'm like, we should talk more. But Brandon, uh, Brandon's a wild child. Yeah, yeah, he's awesome, man. He is. He is awesome. They're both like super. They're they're my brothers. Yeah, know? and uh, yeah, like I said, I just appreciate everything that you do, and especially everything you did for my family as well. Of course, brother. You know, um, of course. it means means the world to me. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. 
Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on, man. It's been My pleasure. Time. My pleasure. It was fun. Yeah, and we'll have to uh, get you back on. So the book. Uh, I have it. I can show it yes, to you. Yes, it'll be coming out, and we that'll get into a lot more detail yes. um, of all the, the I craziness. I got so many other crazy stories. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and they're all, I mean, entertaining. Yeah. It's it's awesome. I can't wait for it to come out. Thanks, brother. Appreciate you. All Thank right, bro. you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Out. Of course. Out. I had so many phone calls. I hope nothing is wrong.